Okay, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, and we will actually read verses 3 through 8. And that will be the text for this morning's sermon. We will be discussing the incarnation of Christ, the, the two natures of Christ, His deity and His humanity. And we're going to see in that, when we look at His incarnation, somewhat of the mindset of Christ and, and its implications for you and I. Because we'll see in this passage, we are instructed to have this mind that was in him. And so, well, let us read the passage and then we'll, we'll start from there. So, chapter 2, starting with verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and having made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We do pray that as we come to study your Word, that we would have a better understanding of the nature of Christ, His deity, His humanity, and His self-emptying, His um, humility, His obedience, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Um, so help us to understand who He is and all that He's accomplished on our behalf. And in light of that, what our response should be. And so we pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. Well, I don't know how you and your families celebrate different traditions. We are at that time of year that we start preparing to celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, in our household, we have traditions around our own birthdays. Like, when it is your birthday, you have your birthday week. It's a week. And during that week, um, you get... It's all about you. It really is. Like, what you're going to eat, when you're going to eat it. Is it takeout? Is it, um, is it eat out? Um, you get to determine the activities, the entertainment. It really is all about you the whole week, which is great when you're the one that it's all about. We just got done celebrating the, the, the advent of Denise. And we are now starting another advent. It's the advent of our granddaughter, Jane. Um, fortunately, one advent has come to an end, and now we are off the hook. Uh, not so fast. We are not off the hook. And we're going to see in today's passage, neither are you. Because what that tradition is all about 
It's about putting the interest of the other person before your own interest. You know, so it really is a great exercise. My week was filled with waking up first thing in the morning, making sure she had the little post-it that said, I love you, make the coffee, make sure everything's swept, clean, sanitized, and everything else. And, you know, you start looking forward to the day that you are finished with it. (laughs) You know, today I am off the hook because it is more than one week. I say that all to say this because this passage will say that you and I need to consider the interest of others. Something about the mindset of Christ that says that he put your interest even above his own. That's pretty amazing. Hopefully this will give us a new perspective as we do enter this Christmas season. Well, let's look at each verse and then we'll get to its implications for you and I. So verse 3, the Apostle Paul says to do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that other people are more important than you. You could read it that way, but that's not what he's saying. He does tell us to count others more important. We do have a very high estimation of ourselves, don't we? We all probably love that song that came out years ago, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I don't remember the words to it, but to some degree we do have a high estimation of ourselves and maybe not such a high estimation of others. But it will be helpful to keep in mind that verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Humility is lowliness of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourself. He's not saying necessarily that other people are more important than you, but you need to treat them. You need to count them. You need to consider them as being more important. Verse 4, Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. I would highlight that uh, that word interest when it says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest. That word interest is not in the original. It's actually a filler. So it would go something, something like this. Do not merely look out for yours, but look out for theirs. And it kind of keeps it open-ended like, what is it? What is it that I'm to look out for? Here's what it would look like. It would be like fill in the blank. Let let each of you look not to his own affairs, family, personal health, relationship, or reputation, success, comfort, ease, happiness, But look out for theirs, their happiness, their comfort, their ease, their reputation, their success, 
their finances, their property. Look out for the other person. You might have desires that are directed toward your own personal, but he's saying have those desires for their success, their happiness. Uh, think of some strategies that would that lend itself toward toward that, toward them being healthy, happy, toward their reputation. You just fill in the blank. In other words, it is open-ended. It says, let each of you look not out to his own. Open-ended, fill in the blank, but to theirs. Just like the advent of Denise. And what this passage is calling us to do in verse 4, it really sets the stage for the mind of Christ. Because Christ did this. He did verses 3 and 4, and we're going to see that in a moment. Work toward that end. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what you're going to see in the... um, ESV, um, the NASB and the King James Version will have a little different variation. It, it goes something like this. It'll say, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I'm just going to spend a moment on, on the different nuances of that. Uh, the translation we have before us, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, I think fits the context of this whole passage the best. If you have the um, ESV, it does have the idea that have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. In other words, because of your union with Christ, you have this mind already. Now act upon it. Act it out. Live it out. And I think that could be seen throughout scriptures. I just don't think that's the, the best translation here. And I won't make all of my arguments for it. But I will at least point out that the passage we have before us today in the NASB, it's saying, let this attitude or this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And the reason I say I think that one fits the context of the best, verses 3 and 4, is already setting the stage for an attitude that you and I should have, right? Um, It's that we do things with humility, counting or considering others, um, putting their interest above our own, right? And then in verse 5, he tells us to have this mind which was also in Christ. And if you go down to verse 6, he starts to lay it out, what that looks like, what this mind looks like. The mind that was in Christ. That's why I think the second rendering is the best. It fits it. What was the mindset? Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so you see, starting in verse 6, so I think the very two words, have this mind, 
that where this points both ways, this mind that Paul was already talking about in verses 3 and 4, and the mind that he's talking about in verses 6 through 8, it's the mind that God becomes man, becomes a servant, comes in the likeness of a slave, humbles himself, becomes obedient, even to the point of death, death on the cross, that's the mindset that he's calling us to. So I, I think the second rendering of it's best and it's going to help us as we move along. Also, what I would have you consider in verse 5, it says, so have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Um, it highlights the idea that Christ was a model, an example to be followed, that you and I should follow his example. Now, in case anybody gets too excited or offended by Christ being an example, the scriptures clearly portray him as an example. Now, he's not only an example. See, there are some that would just limit Christ to being a good man, a good example, somebody to follow. He is a good example, but he's more than a good example. Let's look at a couple passages that would speak to Christ being an example. And I would even dare say more than an example. He's, um, so how about turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Starting with verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. And verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Peter says... You were called to this, called to follow in his footsteps, his example. It was Christ an example? Sure. How should you and I endure suffering? He was a great example. Was he more than an example? Yes. He bore your sins and my sins on a cross, right? So, I don't want you guys hearing me say that Christ was just a good example. There are a lot of religions that would have folks follow their leader. A good example to follow, they would dare say. Well, Christianity, to be sure, 
we are to be followers of Christ. Christ is our model. He is our example. But He's so much more. He's also our Savior. He bore our sins on the cross. Verse 6. When we consider verses 6 through 8, now we are talking about the nature of Christ. Probably one of the most important passages in all the scriptures on the nature of Christ. Both His deity and His humanity. So let's take a look at verse 6, 7, and 8. So verse 6, we'll be looking at the nature of God. Who was in the form of God? did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So, the Apostle Paul is telling us to have this mind which was in Christ Jesus, also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind, who, this one, that we're to emulate, to model, to follow after, he was in the form of God. And he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now we do need to unpack at least a few words in there. So verse 6 when it says he was in the form of God is the Apostle Paul saying that he was like God? What does he mean by the word form? Was he like God? Or was he very God? And you may be sitting there going, wow, I sure wish I knew the Greek. Or Pastor Matt, I wish he was here and he could tell us what the Greek is. It won't help you so much. You'll at least know that it means form. But it won't tell you which one of those two ideas the Apostle Paul has in mind. But the thing that you and I all need to realize, even if we're not experts in Greek, many times the context will help us to understand which idea is in mind here. So, is he like God or is he God? Let's continue verse 6 on. Who was in the form of God. He did not count it equality. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So saying of Jesus, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, we still need to work a little more work to do. There's two ways you can grasp something, right? Um, you can grasp something in the sense that you don't have it. So you're reaching for it, trying to obtain it or reach it or get it, right? Is that what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he's talking about the nature of Christ? That he really didn't have deity or deity. He was reaching for it. He wanted to be just like God. Can you think of anybody in Scripture that might have fit that description? It is a description of Satan found in the book of Isaiah. I will be like God. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will. Um, so there was one who fit that description. Is that what the Apostle Paul has in mind? That Christ is reaching for something that he really does not have? Or there is another way that we can grasp something, holding on to something that we do have, right? Not letting go of it. So when, in verse 6, when it says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which one did he have in mind? And maybe you're inclined to say, Boy, I sure wish I knew the Greek. 
to know which one he has in mind. Now, you really don't need to know the Greek. We'll look at the context. So, when it says he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, which one actually fits? Notice verse 7 reads like this, but he emptied himself. But he emptied himself. Now let's try to read those ideas back in with those in mind. So, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be reached for or tried to be obtained, but he emptied himself. That wouldn't make sense, right? Why would it not make sense? You can't empty yourself of something you do not have, right? So, I think we should know for sure and it's pretty clear in the passage what the Apostle Paul has in mind that the idea that Christ was in the form of God did not count equality with God. Matter of fact, I would say those are parallel ideas. Not counting equality with God. It's related to the form of God. A thing to be grasped. He's really saying that Jesus is God. Very God. Form of God because He is God. Reaching for? No. Not holding on to. We'll come back to verse 7, or at least the idea of emptying himself in just a moment. But I want to continue on in verse 7 because it does say that he emptied himself and takes on a form. Taking on the form of a servant. Now, again, form of a servant. Is he like a servant? Or is he a servant? I think you're going to find out it's pretty much like the earlier scenario. Christ came as a slave, to be sure. Not like one. He became a slave. And then as you continue to read, being found, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Was he like man? Like, what's, what's it mean here when Paul's saying he's like the likeness of men? Was he not really human? I, I think to help us maybe get a little better understanding of what, what's being, um, uh, what Paul's thinking is here, how about if you turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 3. You're going to see a very similar structure right here. So Romans chapter 8 verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So I think when Paul's writing to the Philippians and he's saying that Christ took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man, he isn't saying that Paul was that Jesus was just like humanity, but that he was humanity with one exception. 
Can you guys guess what that is after I just read Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 3? He was sinless. He was fully man, humanity. With one exception, he didn't have the baggage you and I come with. So he was born in the likeness of men. To be sure, Paul is portraying Christ as God, man, slave, man. Likeness in every way with you and I, fully human, with one exception. He was sinless. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Again, we have the idea that he was found in human form, the idea of his humanity. He humbles himself. We've seen this idea back in verse 3 and 4. We'll come to this a little bit later. But he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. A couple implications with the idea of humbling. In, in verse 3, you to hear it again. Do not do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourself. We see Christ's humility being spoken of here in verse 8 that he humbled himself. That he put your concerns, your interests, even above his own. Listen to verse 3 again. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Even for those that may not be worthy, they may not deserve it. You and I didn't. And so we see in verse 8 that it says of Christ that being found in human form, He humbled Himself. He put your interest and my interest even above His own. Was it because we are worthy or because we deserved? No. It was because that's how He counted us. And it all comes from a humility of mind that He would humble Himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. I do want to spend a few moments on the idea of obedience, obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. I would at least see three implications of Christ's obedience. The first being that you have the Father and the Son working together. They're teamed up. Notice that the passage, um, and often throughout scriptures, who sent the Son? 
God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son, right? So often we see this idea of the father sending the son and the son going in obedience. So you see the two working together for your salvation and for mine. Those are huge implications. Pastor Matt, as he's been preaching through the Gospel of John, you see this Trinitarian work of our salvation it is absolutely astounding. And the assurance that lies there and even, even our eternal hope that it's a done deal for all those who are in Christ, that is absolutely amazing. So the first thing I would point out is this passage is highlighting the idea that they're in this together. The Father sends him, Christ goes, there's obedience. And and obedience is the way that his whole life is described in one word in this passage. Obedience. Listen to the way it's... um, Verse 8, Found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. So from beginning to end. Actually I needed you to go back up to verse 7. Because it's not only that he was obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. But when did this start? Go back to verse 7. By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man. So from birth to death. If you were to describe Christ's life. One of humility and one of of obedience. Right? So, all the way from beginning to end. So, we see the Father sends, Christ goes. Obedience would describe his life from his birth to his death. So, our salvation is a Trinitarian work. The Father and Son are teaming up together. The second implication that I would see in the idea of his obedience is... um, an imputed righteousness to you and I. If if you could turn just probably one page over in your Bible, it would be the same book, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul wasn't trusting in his own righteousness. He counts everything as loss in comparison. Notice what he's gained. A righteousness of my own? Derived from the law? No. His hope and trust is in that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made 
righteous. So Christ, one act of obedience, and that's where I think Paul's getting to, even in Romans 5.19, through his act of obedience, from beginning to death, birth to death, either my face changes form or... Not sure why. From birth to death, Christ's one act of obedience. What does Paul say of that in Romans chapter 5, verse 19? Through that one man's obedience, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So the big implication of Christ's obedience, you have the Father and the Son teaming up on our behalf. You have the the justification or righteousness being imputed to you and I. Um, A third implication that you and I really ought to know that we are loved by God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners. Think back to verse 3 and 4 again. 3. He's saying how we're to count in all humility, count others. And then then verse 4. Count others how? More important than yourself. Who did that? Christ. Verse 4, putting the interests of others. Why? Because you and I are loved. Romans 5, 8 again. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are loved by God. That is absolutely amazing. And on the heels of that, knowing that you and I are loved by God, and that he would humble himself, become obedient even to the point of death. We are called to sacrifice. See, we finish verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, which actually brings us right back to the beginning. This is the never-ending message, because I'm going to go back up to verse... Here's what he's saying. See, because of his great love for us, we are actually called to have the same mind. To know that you and I are radically loved by Him, that He gave Himself, that He was obedient to the point of death. Notice it does say death. Obedient to death, even death on the cross, the most heinous kind of death with shame and pain and ag. He's going, even death on the cross. You've got to know that the Father and the Son are in this together. We receive the righteousness of God through that one man's obedience that we are loved by him. We are also called to put on the same mind that he had in the interest of others. So I started mine out with the idea that um, how we celebrate birthdays in our household and said I'm off the hook. Am I really off the hook? Am I done? Are you done? It's just begun. You and I are called to treat others called in humility, to consider others more important than ourselves, to consider their interests. Remember, the word interest isn't there, so you have to feel, whatever it is, you know, what are the desires, aspirations, what, what, what's the need? What, I don't know, not your own, you, but thinking of theirs, 
And whose mind are you emulating at that point in time? We're right back to verse 5. Put this mind on. Let this mind be yours, which was in him, which was also in him. So we're called to follow in his footsteps. So I know by right now, and I think I'm done early, I was concerned I was going to start hacking up. So you guys might think, well, wait, we didn't even get to the points yet. There was only one point to the message all along. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. I don't want to, you know, if I start becoming too clever, you guys will have points that probably shouldn't be in there, but there is one point to this message. It's the message from verse 3, 4, and all along that let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Right? So what is the one point? Kids, it's going to be pretty important. It is looking out for the interests of others. It really is summing up verse 4. Or you could put it in another way. The very first part of chapter, uh, verse 5. The mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Um, And what is that mindset for all of us? It's looking out for the interest of others. Especially in the household of faith. Right? Um, very good well I'm going to close with that thought I have more but I actually made it to the point I wanted without coughing too much with only like four halls a few um, so well let us pray You know what? I can't have us pray yet. I forgot one point. Bonus. Bonus point right here. You guys thought you was off the hook. I never did answer the question. You guys should ask the question, what did it mean that he emptied himself? I know you guys listened very closely to Pastor Matt last week and so you didn't need it answered because he already gave us the answer. It doesn't mean that Christ emptied himself of deity. So at the verse 6 when it says, you know, after it gets done talking about him grasping, didn't grasp, but emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? It wasn't deity. Jesus never quit being God. That's folly. Well, it's heresy too, but um, it's... Definitely that he didn't um, divest himself of deity. So what is it? Here's my answer. I don't know. That's a bad answer, right? But we really don't know because the text doesn't really say. All it says is that he emptied himself. Now the very next verse, or in chapter, or verse 7, when it says he emptied himself, it does talk about him taking on the form of a servant. Does that answer it? Possibly, because now he is taking on humanity, becomes a slave. My own, you know, and I've seen others, probably my thinking along, or at least the best explanation that I see is, do you guys have the um, passage, John chapter 17, verse 5. This will only take you guys a second. John 17, verse 5. Here's what I think it means when it says that he um, emptied himself. 
it's his prerogatives or his privilege to glory. Listen to, listen to his prayer in John 17 verse 5. We won't read the whole prayer, but John 17 verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So there was this glory that he had that obviously doesn't have the same degree of glory, right? Because he's wanting a restoration of that glory. Um, another passage that probably helps me with that is something like 2 Corinthians chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 9. But you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... That though he was rich, speaking of his pre-incarnation, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. See, I think something along that line, here's what I do know. The writer of Philippians, Paul doesn't say what it, what it is, but my best guess throughout the rest of the scriptures is that it has something to do with his glory. Uh, Jesus prays for a return of that same glory. Um, the writer Paul in 2 Corinthians speaks of his poverty, and through his poverty, you and I become rich. Um, there's many other passages that would lead me to think that's the case. I do know that somehow by him, it says in his self-emptying or emptying himself, he takes on humanity, becomes a servant, and so when John, even in the prologue of John, when Pastor Matt read that and was dealing with that section of Scripture, we do see that, um, you know, that Christ did have glory still, you know, but I think it was probably reduced somehow. That's my best shot at it. Um, seems to work best with some of the other scriptures. Here's the one thing we know. It wasn't his deity. He never quit being God. So Jesus is God. Jesus is man. He does empty himself and becomes obedient. And through his obedience, his humility and his obedience has huge implications for you and I. Benefits. Knowing that the Father and the Son team up on our behalf. Knowing that we can have imputed righteousness by faith in the Son of Jesus Christ. Knowing that you and I are loved and that we are now called to put on the same mind. So, now we can pray. You guys had to ask the question, what's it mean to empty, right? You couldn't... I don't want to get calls at midnight... Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this season and all that it represents. A glorious God, a glorious Savior. God becoming man in humility, obedience, becoming a servant, obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Wow, that is absolutely astounding, absolutely amazing. May our minds be impacted by that truth. May we have the mind of Christ, the mind which was also in Christ. May we be those who are concerned about others, that we would even put the interest of others above our own.
For that to happen, we're going to have to be people who are filled with humility. And for Christians, all we have to do is take a look at the cross and it should produce in us a great sense of humility. Realizing that we are unworthy, undeserving, and yet Christ counted us as worthy, important enough to die on our behalf. That is absolutely amazing. May your word inform our thinking in Christ's great name. Amen. Well, God bless. Do we have communion today, don't we? i just seen that. Christ set in place by the Lord on the night that he would be betrayed, that we would remember the death of Christ, that we would remember the body of Christ that was broken for us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, where as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim <coughs> death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner